when man is confronted with the revelation of God in unrighteousness, he suppresses that truth. He holds it down. So they're suppressing the truth regarding God. And now God says, I'm going to let you suppress the truth regarding my handiwork and specifically my handiwork in your body. So that now men suppress the truth, not only about God, but they are given over to suppressing the truth about their very sexual constitution. A human beings as made in the image of God are in their glory when they find their meaning, when they find their life in God. And that's the only way we can find glory because God is the source of glory. And so when you turn away from God, you turn to futility. And so God is basically saying, you're going to turn away from me to futility. I'm gonna give you futility. Here's what futility looks like. You're going to stop recognizing what your, how your human body is constructed. All right, you're going to start ha having uh, males and females pret pretending that a square peg fits in a round hole, if you will. When God really turns us over, he allows us to become blind in ways that are that ought to be unfathomable. By and large, the evangelical church has lost a grip on the authority of scripture. When you see the church, people who are sensibly Christian, who are rejecting those things, that is not, oh, well, it's an exegetical issue. It's a hermeneutical issue. No, mm -hmm. it's not. Mm -hmm. This is a disobedience. Welcome to this special edition of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart. I'm here today with Tim Gallant. Brian Motes, as always, is in the background uh, recording, and he'll be editing and getting it ready for you all, uh, our listening audience. Tim Gallant uh, is an old friend. Uh, he's uh, recently published a book through Theopolis, one of our Theopolis Explorations volumes. And I wanted to spend some time talking to Tim about his book. Uh, I think it's a very valuable book dealing with a challenging topic, an important topic for the church today. The title is Exchanging the Glory, and it's a look at idolatry and homosexuality, focusing in on Romans 1. So, uh, Tim, welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. Thank you. Some of uh, our listeners will know you from your writing, and some of them will know you from uh, the workshop that you did for us recently, but others won't. So, maybe you could give some background about your, your studies, your interests, and what brought you to this particular book. Okay. Well, essentially, I'm a nobody. I don't uh, teach at a, a seminary. I'm, I don't have a doctorate. I do have an MDiv. To make this story longer than it maybe needs to be, I was raised by a very uneducated traveling preacher who had a grade three education. But the one thing that he got into my head was the Bible. The naked word of God is where you have to start and end. Um, no matter how you feel, no matter how what other people say, this is the only solid thing you have to cling to. And uh, if you don't, you'll end up with nothing. That was his philosophy. And, and that's, that's really the heritage I, I gained from my father and uh, has really stuck with me. That's what God really planted in my heart from the beginning. Um, that view of scripture has led me through all sorts of theological reformations and 
ultimately uh, led to me getting better equipped to understand scripture uh, in seminary, in Mid-America Reform Seminary, back between 1997 and 2000. And then uh, really, as you know, the process doesn't stop. Uh, seminary should never be the end of being equipped. It just kind of gives you more tools to equip yourself with more tools. <laughs> so, um, so after that, I, uh, I pastored for roughly a decade between Montana and Alberta. Um, and then um, the Lord led me into the Nashville area where I'm not pastoring, but I am still trying to do as much as I can with the equipment that uh, the Lord has seen fit to give me. So uh, I'm trying to write. Yeah. I've always thought of you as being one of the Canadian triumvirate. You and John Berich and Gary Vanderveen, I guess, was the third that I thought of as a, a triumvirate of Reformed theologians from Canada who have Two of you, Gary's still up in Canada, but the, the other two of you have come down to the states and invaded the United States. Yes, yes. You thought you thought it was the southern border to worry about, but it's really <laughs> the northern borders. Yeah. So, were you? Did you grow up in Alberta? Is that where your dad was doing his itinerant? Research? Yeah. Um, well, my dad was a traveler, and we actually never lived in one place for more than. Um, if we got to two years, it was rare. Uh, yeah. I was actually born in British Columbia, but I consider Alberta home because most of the time since I was probably, oh, I want to say about 12, uh, we've lived somewhere in Alberta. I, we also <laughs> moved back and forth to BC and Mount Toby in between, but I actually really settled after I became an adult and Grand Prairie and Northern mm -hmm. Alberta became my home. And, uh, that was in 1987. So that, that, I consider that my hometown, even though I didn't live there as a child. So, yeah, yeah, I didn't have a hometown. Yeah, right. It sounds like a, a colorful childhood <laughs> that uh, that left its mark on you. Yeah, it was uh, it was def definitely interesting. I spent a lot of time among uh, the natives up north. My dad, my dad felt he was especially called uh, to minister among the natives. Of course, in those days, it was okay to call them Indians, and mm -hmm. they still describe themselves as Indians. But you're not allowed to say that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned your writing and uh and I I wanted to call our listeners attention to one particular book that you've written, uh Feed My Lambs, which is the book that I recommend to everyone who asks me what to read about Pato communion. Uh there are other things out there but uh, I think that's the the best single volume that that uh, covers the ground of Pato communion thoroughly systematically. It's the one one-stop shop where you uh, get everything you need to know about Pato communion. But you've also you've also written on Galatians and some other some other topics. Well, certainly, feed my lambs was uh, my original source of notoriety. At any rate, um, of course, when it was published originally, that was back in two thousand two. Uh, there wasn't a lot available on the subject. There was your little book on uh, uh, Daddy. Why was I excommunicated? Mm -hmm. So that that was certainly a creditable book, but uh, but it really wasn't intended as a comprehensive overview. No. So I, I tried to tried to meet what I felt was a need because I, I basically went through that um, journey uh, kind of drawing from here and there. Uh, I was not, I, my starting point was, well, the reform tradition is probably right, but, but the scripture is the ultimate authority. And so I have to look at this. And uh, certainly your book was one of the things I looked at. I, I uh, consulted some Jordan stuff that I think was on audio and mm -hmm. Kenneth Gentry had some audio stuff that I read and, uh, certainly stuff from uh, a variety of positions. And uh, ultimately, by the time I got to the end of it, I, I just really felt like, you know, somebody needs to really put this together uh, in a way that, you know, 
somebody can just read and see, okay, here's the, oh, an essentially comprehensive treatment. I mean, I don't think anything will be completely exhaustive, but at least right. it covers the general, the general areas. So, yeah. Yeah. My, my own contribution to the discussion was a polemical book against uh, a particular defense of the traditional reform view. And I have to say that the, the defenses I read or the, the opposition to Pato communion was one of the things that really convinced me of Pato communion because the defenses were so, <laughs> yeah, so tenuous yeah. and, uh, yeah. and poorly constructed and just implausible. Um, yeah. And much, you know, if you're looking for, uh, you know, one of the, one of the standards of a, of a good theory is its elegance and simplicity. And you're looking for something that's elegant and kind of uh, solves, solves all the problems without a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of extraneous parts uh, clogging things up. Uh, Pato communion is clearly the more elegant of the, uh, of the options. Yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. And it, I'm, and of course it all depends on your presuppositions too. Um, sure. how co coherent, you think the Old Testament presents the kind of the type the relational typology in the in the covenant and where chil where children come into that and so there's a, a whole bunch of presuppositions in everybody's view but uh, certainly I, I, where I'm coming from it, it, it's pretty clearly uh, superior to the very inconsistent as far as I'm concerned view that says that a a child is to be baptized and then a place is set at the table and the child starves for uh, however many years before that place at the table is filled. That's, um, that's incomprehensible to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've done some other work on Paul, but uh, the particular book we want to talk about is your Theopolis Explorations Volume Exchanging the Glory. And did, did that start out as um, kind of an offshoot of work on Romans? Is that, is that how you came to the idea of writing this volume? I think probably the original, the original source was that I, I was preaching through the early part of Romans a number of years ago, and uh, just the the logic of Paul's argument in that chapter really struck me. I said, "Wow, this is is literary and it's powerful," and then, and I, you know, I thought this is this is amazing, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and so I always wanted to go back to it and. Um, and of course, Romans as a whole, I, I never did finish preaching the book, but um, I really felt like I want to do more work in this book because it's so rich. It's got uh, so many threads. Uh, it's like this rich tapestry that you just kind of never, never finish tracing through everything. And, and then, of course, uh, not only had I preached through it, not only was I wanting to write something in general, but there's a simple fact that no matter where you turn, you're confronted with this whole issue of, of homosexuality. You can't even avoid it if you tried. So it was really pulling at me. And the thing with homosexuality is it's, it's confronted me in, in my everyday life as well. I have, uh, I have family members who are homosexual. Uh, I've certainly met many homosexuals, worked with them. Um, and, and, of course, in whether it's in the news or in social media or wherever, you're going to also be confronted with all sorts of um, arguments, defenses, propaganda. Uh, so it, it really seemed like, you know, this is clearly something that's on the radar. It's something mm -hmm. that uh, that we can't avoid talking about. And I felt that there was something that I, I could say to speak to it in terms of what Paul had said and that might be valuable. So. Um, originally I had the idea, well, I, I, 
you know, I've got a lot of different thoughts on different passages in Romans. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do this, uh, a collection of essays. Mm-hmm. But then I thought about it and I'm going, well, not very many people read collections of essays <laughs> like that. Um, even, even from him, uh, you know, people who are much more well-known than I am. And, and I just, I just really felt that this was the sort of issue that I didn't want to get buried uh, like that, like what would happen in that case. So, right. and then of course it, it definitely gave me opportunity to work through it at more length than I would have, if I had to treat it as one essay among many. So. Yeah. And, and I know you said you, you haven't uh, finished preaching through Romans, but had you worked enough with the book as a whole to get a sense of where, what do you think the book is about? How, do, how does, what's, what is the argument of Romans? What is Paul trying to do? And I, I want to come back to Romans one, but just to set it in that larger context, what's the, what's the goal of uh, the letter? Well, I guess that kind of kind of depends on what you're talking about in terms of goal. Um, in one sense, the goal of the letter is for Paul to acquaint himself with the Romans or acquaint them with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, on that level, we could say that. But in terms of the actual subject matter, this is, of course, the most thickly layered, most textured of Paul's letters. But I think it's fair to say that the most prevailing theme is the righteousness of God. Um, I think that works its way throughout, um, from beginning to end. In some way, that's affecting what he writes in essentially every chapter of the letter. So that's that's kind of the heart of it. Now, of course, what does the righteousness of God mean? <laughs> that that <laughs> obvious next question. Yes, very large can of worms, um, juicy worms, to be sure. Um, uh, of course, the the old Luther thing is well. This is the the righteousness of God that's given me in Jesus and. And uh, I'm not going to discount the value of of seeing our righteousness in Christ, but that's not what that phrase in particular means. Um, it's uh, interesting that this phrase occurs in Paul's letters in a cluster where he's quoting certain passages in, in Romans 3. And when you start looking up those passages in their context, almost all of them, somewhere in that context, say your righteousness or you know, that kind of mostly speaking to God in second person, mm-hmm. your righteousness. Um, so the question is, what does it mean in those contexts? And it really comes down to God's faithfulness, his truthfulness. And this is, um, this can be looked at from more than one angle. But um, first of all, his faithfulness uh, has to do with uh, the knowledge that we can be sure he will be true to what he said. Uh, and that truth um, has to do not only with judgment, of course, but also with salvation. And that's that's why Paul makes it such a thing of good news in the beginning of Romans 1, uh, or in the middle of Romans 1, and when he gives his summary of, of what he's about to do mm-hmm. um, in the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, this is where uh, God's faithfulness to what he has promised Israel is going to be demonstrated as it's never been demonstrated before. And of course, it's always been demonstrated, but this is going to be his supreme uh, demonstration of that uh, faithfulness, that righteousness. Um, So in a sense, the righteousness of God, it it has to do with his character, but in terms of what Paul's talking about, it has to do with his revelation primarily in in his son. Mm -hmm. And of course, that theme then will carry forward 
repeatedly and, and kind of unpack itself through the different contexts Paul takes it through the letter. Yeah. So, um, and don't want to get you in a fight with Martin Luther, but, um, <laughs> uh, so Luther says, uh, the breakthrough for him, at least one of the breakthroughs is to recognize that the righteousness of God is the, is not the righteousness that belongs to God, but the righteousness he gives. And you're suggesting on the contrary, that it's the first of those that, that the older understanding of the righteousness of God as God's own righteousness is correct, mm-hmm. but you're understanding the meaning of righteousness differently. Yes. Yeah, th- th- that's critical to understand is that we're not just simply going back to uh, a pre-Luther understanding of the righteousness right. of God, because uh, what Paul, what Peter, or pardon me, what uh, Martin is really <laughs> having a struggle with, too many names here. Um, I can only deal with one or two at a time. Um but what Martin has, is having a struggle with is this conception of righteousness, uh, indeed, how we quite often use the term, and that is really holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's thinking of it in terms of the holiness of God, uh, which is not very good news uh, if you don't have some way to broach that holiness. Um, so uh, how is it good news to me that God is holy and I'm a sinner? That, that by itself is not very good news. Mm-hmm. But if, in fact, uh, the righteousness of God is supremely uh, revealed in what God has done for us in sending us his son in order to bear sin on our behalf, then I don't need to go that second step and say, well, it's the holy acts of Jesus that he is are imputed to me. It's his self-giving death that is really at the heart of that point of the righteousness of God in Paul's writing. Yeah. So, what would you say to the uh, to the counter that uh, if if Paul wanted to talk about the righteousness of God in terms of his faithfulness to covenant, for example, um, he's got a whole range of terms that he might use to describe that. I mean, who's got the language of faithfulness right in the same passage where he introduces righteousness of God? You mm-hmm. point out in the book that he's uh, end of Romans uh, three. You have um, a cluster of uses of righteousness uh, or faithfulness, rather. So um, the the use of the dikai asuna, the dikai mm-hmm. root, suggests something to do with justice. Uh, that is that that Lisa might include right might include a kind of faithfulness, but also shades over into into uh, maybe concerned with public um, justice of his creation or something like that. The the right order of his creation. Yeah. You think? Yeah. Do you think that's part of the mix? Yeah. I... See, the, so part of the problem is saying Paul had other other terms available to him. So, well, certainly he did, but he uses those terms virtually interchangeably with mm-hmm. righteousness of God in 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 that context. Um, it's mind blowing how he weaves these themes of uh, faithfulness, faith, the uh, pistis uh, kind of word group, uh, with the the dikaiosune word group. Uh, mm-hmm. Romans three one to eight, um, he's just weaving these terms back and forth mm-hmm. like they all, they're almost the same thread. So certainly he has other terms available to him. On the other hand, when you look at the passages that he's reading uh, and and bringing up, it, it may well be questioned whether he's drawing from them because the righteousness of God appears in them. Or he's using the term righteousness of God so frequently because he's using these passages where they re- where they recur. It's a, it's one of those chicken or egg right. scenarios. Um, yeah. So 
I mean, if if it's uh, so clearly within the the Hebrew scriptures, this term is is used so so much at the core of what God wants to say. What's the problem with Paul using it that way? I don't I don't understand that objection, frankly. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, the other thing I was going to ask, uh, pursuing this, this will get, get us more into the uh, part of Romans 1 that you focus on. So it's good news if the righteousness of God is God's faithfulness now manifested in the, in, the, in the gift of his son. But immediately, as soon as Paul introduces righteousness of God in that sense, he's also talking about the revelation of wrath. Right. That seems to be almost like the other side of the coin from the revelation of the righteousness of God. So how do you see those two factors working together in Paul's in Paul's gospel. Well, I mean, there's a sense in which you could say that God's um God's judgment against sin is also a display of his righteousness. Paul doesn't really take that track. He's more interested in juxtaposing the righteousness of God which is now revealed in his son in God's son mm-hmm. over against this existing revelation the wrath of God. So we have two res- re- revelations, the, the demonstration, the revelation of God's righteousness in his son and the revelation of his wrath, which is already existing in the world and can be seen in what society looks like. And so therefore, uh, in Paul's argument, I think he's he's taking the righteousness of God as God's own answer to the problem that we already see in the world. Um the revelation of wrath, of course, is also based on a prior revelation. So we 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 have to track it back further because in in Romans one, where Paul starts talking about the revelation of wrath, the wrath is revealed precisely because man is already suppressing a revelation, mm-hmm. that which can be known of God, which he he sees God in a sense. Uh, God has made known to him his attributes, his power, uh, and so on. Uh, and man suppresses that. So now God comes uh, comes with another revelation and response, which is wrath. And now it's a perspective wrath because it's not the final wrath. It's wrath that works out in history. And then, of course, there's a final wrath that Paul will speak of. He hints at it already in the last verse of chapter one and then moves on to it in chapter two when he talks about the final judgment. But So these revelations are, are related to one another, uh, but they're certainly not the same revelation. Um mm-hmm the uh the revelation of wrath is really what raises the issue now in in Romans 1 he's pro- Paul is primarily talking about the world as a whole he's not primarily addressing Israel but he's kind of hinting that that's where he's going right right so. yeah there's a, there's a there's a rhetorical setup mm-hmm. in Romans 1 very and, much yeah and looks like a polemic against uh gentiles but then he quotes from the psalms which are describing Israel's history Right, and Israel's history of idolatry. Yeah. So the issue of idolatry, that one of the, I mean, at the center of your book, really, the, it's in the subtitle, um, is the connection between idolatry and homosexuality. And you make the point early in the book that even though Paul is in a culture where homosexuality is of, of some form is tolerated and in some cases endorsed and celebrated, he doesn't make that his leading argument or point of attack. He's in Athens in Acts 17, and he doesn't make it a point of attack. He never mentions it. And even in Romans, where he does bring it up, and there's a the, uh, one of the central passages in Paul about sexual conduct, that's still not the main thrust of the argument. The argument is about idolatry. So, in, in your view, what's the how does Paul's argument move from his concern with idolatry as kind of the 
the source sin to uh, talking about the the evil, the sexual perversions that he talks about later in the passage. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I've mentioned that um, where he begins is that man's problem uh, starts with his response to the the revelation which God has given. Um, and of course, this is first self-revelation, but how does God reveal himself? He reveals himself through his handiworks. And of course, Paul is actually giving a, a bit of an echo of Psalm 19. And that is about the glory of God, but also his handiwork. And that's really the, the in, in many ways, the relationship between idolatry and homosexuality in Paul's argument. So, when man is confronted with the revelation of God in unrighteousness, he suppresses that truth. He holds it down. Well, Paul says that because unrighteous men did not see fit to honor God as God and did not give him thanks for being God and for doing the works of God, which was good, um, God saw fit in turn to turn them over to a different suppression of the truth. So they're suppressing the truth regarding God. And now God says, I'm going to let you suppress the truth regarding my handiwork and specifically my handiwork in your body. So that now men suppress the truth, not only about God, but they are given over to suppressing the truth about their very sexual constitution. Um, that's that's the, um, the appropriateness of what Paul says. Human beings, as made in the image of God, are in their glory when they find their meaning, when they find their life in God. That's what. That's the only. That's the only way we can find glory, because God is the source of glory. And so, when you turn away from God, you turn to futility. And so, God is basically saying, "You're going to turn away from me." to futility. I'm going to give you futility. Here's what futility looks like. You're going to stop recognizing what your, how your human body is constructed. All right. You're going to start uh, ha having uh, males and females pret pretending that a square peg fits in a round hole, if you will. Uh, the, ver the very construction of our bodies is a revelation of God's handiwork, and it tells us about ourselves. But when God really turns us over, he allows us to become blind in ways that are that ought to be unfathomable. But the reason that this happens is because God has turned us over to our blindness. And so even as there's futility in the worship of false gods, because they're not real gods, there is no power there, then you end up with futility and sexuality, which is why sexual perversion cannot result in fruitfulness. When we, when we get to the end of the chain, we get to a place where you cannot have a male impregnating another male. That's futility. It's a, Paul wouldn't be surprised with the sexual confusions of our time, it sounds like, because um, he would see it as just another case of God giving a, a people over to the blindness that they've already cultivated. Yeah. We've already chosen blindness by blinding ourselves to the glory of God as revealed in creation. Yes. And God judges that in kind of eye for eye, lex talionis judgment. Very much, yes. Yeah. Uh, gives us over to a, a deeper kind of blindness or a more obvious kind of blindness, perhaps. The other thing that you uh, mentioned briefly, but I wanted to know if you wanted to, if you could uh, fill it out. I mean, in both cases, you have this kind of mechanism or this dynamic of exchanging glory. Mm -hmm. uh, we're created to glorify God, we're created to share in his glory. But then you make the case that there's a similar kind of dynamic going on 
uh, in uh, homosexuality and other kinds of sexual perversions. Yeah, well, when you, uh, of course, when you turn from God, you cannot turn to um, nothing. Man is an inescapably a worshiping creature. So when he turns from worshiping the true God, he doesn't thereby stop being a worshiper. He exchanges the glory of God for something else. Of course, in, in Paul's letter, he he shows how it kind of reverses things, whereas God gave man dominion in a certain order over the, or over his workmanship. Paul actually kind of reverses that verse in, I think it's the, uh, Genesis 1.26, mm-hmm. um, so that now instead of having dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all, and on and on, now men exchange the glory of God and worship those things. And so, because they don't want to worship the one true God who actually is glorious, they end up worshiping things that aren't not, don't have glory, or at least not as much glory as man himself has. So, already, by turning from worshiping God, you are devaluing yourself. It's a, it's a very fitting picture of how failing to worship God dehumanizes you. It takes away from what you're made to be. Well, then, in a similar way, God has given, and Paul doesn't use this language here in this particular chapter, but elsewhere in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, Paul says that the woman is the glory of the man. So, even as man has turned from God and his glory, he turns to something that's less glorious. Well, that's what happens with homosexuality. Uh, men turn from the glory of the woman and debase themselves with men. Paul does use that language. Um, so, um, you see an exchange going on. When you turn from God's purpose, you're not improving on his purpose. You're devaluing, you're devaluing yourself. You're debasing yourself. You're um, basically turning from glory to mud, you're, you know, you're, or to use more appropriate uh, antonyms, you're turning from glory to shame, to mm-hmm. dishonor. That's the language which Paul uses. Right. So, and yeah, there's a, a, a kind of estrangement from self, self-alienation that's going on in that whole process. It always seems so obvious that this is what Paul's saying mm-hmm. <laughs> here. And there are other places where it's not as, not as fully developed, but um, yeah. uh, other, other references that he makes to homosexual behavior, clearly condemning it. Yeah. I mean, the whole context of uh, first century Judaism Paul's operating in that context, and uh, there's an, I don't know the literature to know if it's universal, but it's an, a widespread hostility to homosexual behavior, which was which was known in the Greco-Roman world. So, the the fact that uh, that commentators are able to wriggle a, a, around this kind of severe statement and and uh, explicit statement has always a, kind of astonished me, the, 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 uh, the slipperiness of those efforts. What are some of the main, what do you think are some of the main uh, dodges that commentators have used to try to get a skirt around what Paul's saying? Are, are there any that you think have any that have merit that would force you to <laughs> a- ask again? Maybe I'm not reading Paul correctly. Well, I, I think the uh, primary hermeneutical dodge that uh, is done is simply trying to deny that Paul is, or the other passages for that matter, is really dealing with homosexual relationships as such. In other words, we're led to believe that even though this is the most natural thing in the world and the, and, and, uh, the culture uh, accepted homosexual behavior, the only thing that's really at critique is 
because in the ancient culture, um, there were these power relationships or or there was a, a context of violence or something like that. Um, so that's that's probably the most common way for those who are trying to pretend to stick with the exegesis. I mean, there are those who simply dismiss them and, you know, right. but we're not talking about those. In terms of people who are trying to at least give some semblance of um, attention to the text, they'll they'll basically just come up and say, it's not really talking about homosexual relations. And there, would, there wouldn't be a... Um, there wouldn't be a problem here if these were loving, committed, you know, socially equal. Yes, socially equal. Right. Of course, there are, are a lot of ways that that can be answered. One of which is that the uh, the Bible is not anywhere near where we are in terms of social equality being an important uh, <laughs> aspect of what a just relationship and a, what a holy relationship looks like. Mm-hmm. So that offends that offends us to begin with. Now, of course, it doesn't condone, you know, rape or anything like that. It certainly does not. I mean, it's very clear on that. But uh, the idea that because one partner in the relationship has a dominant position in society and the other one doesn't, that by itself, Paul wouldn't have blinked about because that happened all the time. And he never addresses it when, in terms of heterosexual relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not the issue, very clearly. Um, now, Romans 1 you can answer that question from Romans 1. It's a little more technical. Uh, I think the best way to address that is to go to 1 Corinthians 6, because Paul uses two distinct terms there, uh, which address both parties in the in a homosexual relationship or, or a homosexual act, if you will. Uh, one of which is the dominant par- partner in, in a homosexual act, and the other of which is what we'd call the receiving party or however way you want to term it without... No, being grotesque. Um, the fact that Paul can appeal to that demonstrates that the ho- the homosexual act itself is the problem because uh, in homosexual relationships in the first century, the dominant part- partner was almost always the person who had the social status, the, the advantage of age, and so on. The fact that he can put the, uh, the catamite, a more traditional term, in that, in that list of sins uh, tells you that it's the act itself that's the problem. Right. You cite some uh, survey evidence at the beginning of the book talking yeah. about um, shifting views among evangelicals, Yeah, among Christians generally, but even among evangelicals who are historically, of course, committed to the authority of Scripture. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm. Uh, it's uh, in your research, this, is it this kind of argument that's swaying people um, but I wonder if you have any sense of what's what is it going on around the arguments? Because you know, if the arguments aren't that strong, yeah. why do people? What is it? What is it that's uh, encouraging, enticing, seducing people to accept arguments like that yeah. and and change their change their understanding of what Scripture is teaching? I can't help but feel that. Um the problem we are facing is is more profound even than people accepting those sorts of sorts of arguments i think that by and large the evangelical church has lost a grip on the authority of scripture um, so even apart from those kind of exegetical wranglings it seems it appears to me at least that there are people who the the scripture is not going to be the word on it 
um, they're going to privilege, and this is the most common thing, is they're going to privilege certain things in what they say is in the Gospels uh, over against direct statements. And, of course, you know what I'm talking about. They're talking about the wel- welcoming a- uh, attitude of Jesus and how he befriends people and welcomes him and so on. Um, his, his talking about love, as if uh, we can just define these things for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But, but again, it comes down to where, w- what role is the Scripture actually playing in these sorts of uh, reassessments? And I, and I don't think it's primarily a matter of people who have done hermeneutical work uh, on Romans 1. I, I think it's primarily we, we've lost our grip on the Bible altogether. And would would you say that that's a further example of the dynamic that Paul's actually describing in Romans one that um, that uh, the church too mm-hmm. is being given over to blindness? Yes, uh, about our our true nature as human beings as male and female, which would suggest that that also is um, arising from it's a judgment it's a judgment of yes. underlying idolatry. It's a, it's a judgment of the church. You know, one of the, one of the powerful things in, in the book of Romans is how he, Paul bookends uh, the letter at the beginning and the end with the obedience of faith. And faith is primarily in response to revelation from man's side. From God's side, faith is faithfulness. But from man's side, Faith is primarily how you respond to what God has revealed, whether that revelation is Jesus has died and and risen again for your sins, or whether that revelation is this is how you were made, uh, whether that revelation is this is what I say in in Genesis 1 uh, regarding what your sexuality is about, and so on. So, when you see the church, people who are sensibly Christian— who are rejecting those things, that is not, oh, well, it's an exegetical issue. It's a hermeneutical issue. No, mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. This is a disobedience of faith. <laughs> okay, so basically you are walking the, the same line of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now that is you. And that's a frightening place to be. Yeah, yeah. So practically, what does that um how have you thought through this in terms of response? I mean, you you start out pointing, you start out in the context of culture war, Christians, and some somewhat other uh, more conservative religious people taking a stand against the sexual perversions of our time. And uh, you're suggesting that something there's something deeper that's going on there, that, namely the idolatry, yeah. and presumably that uh, the the solution obviously is that. People need to turn from idols to the living God. But I'm uh, thinking if you have thought further specifically about how that works out, and specifically if you're if we're talking about the church in the grip of this kind of blindness, um, uh, what 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 do we do in response then? Well, certainly uh, at the beginning we need to repent, but in terms of how um, the church's teachers need to address the situation is we have to stop pretending that Christianity is about all the good things God does for us and that it centers upon human beings. I think this is this is uh 
this is really at the heart of the problem. I think we need to start with a, a rediscovery of theology, <laughs> and that in a very specific sense. I think we need to uh, recover the basics of the glory of God, the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God. Um, and we'll never get to a recovery of of biblical norms regarding sexuality or or anything else for that matter if we don't start with god again if we start with how god makes us feel um or the solutions that god provides us if that's if that's our really our driving thing that's not going to get us anywhere that's what got us to where we are um and so we need to go back to the beginning the bible doesn't start with how god makes us feel and in fact uh, it doesn't really seem to um care that much about how it makes us feel. God makes now the truth of the matter is when we are in a right relationship with God that does affect uh, our emotional state our existential sense of well-being of course it does but it affects us because we are lined up with God and when we recognize that God is the be-all and end-all that only makes sense if you don't line up with the almighty creator and sustainer and preserver of the universe you're, you're not going to be in, <laughs> you're, you're going to be a mess, um, you know? Um, so we can't expect to oppose sexual immorality or any other affront to God's holiness without going back to a higher view of God. Um, and we've trun- truncated the gospel into a, a therapeutic. Um, mm-hmm. It's about what makes things better for me, what makes me feel good. Um, the gospel revolves around me, and that's not what the Bible says at all. That's not the biblical approach. The gospel is good news, but it's good news because it revolves around the living God, and he's the only one who can deliver good news, and he's the only one who can define good news. Um, So if we want to recover Paul's approach, we need to recover what he thinks about God. That's the the starting point, so far as I can see. Um, In the end, everything comes back to worship. Um, that's, That's really what Paul is telling us in Romans 1. You are what you worship. If you worship yourself, even under the guise of doing it in a religious way, Jesus Jesus feeds me, feeds uh, my, my sense of well-being, and so on. That's still not really worshiping God. That's worshiping how you feel. That's worshiping yourself. Um, we need to go back to who is God? What has he said? Um, let's worship him. And when when we get back to God as his, as he's revealed himself, we get a sense of his glory. We get a sense of his uh, sovereignty. Um, we get a sense of his self-attestation. In other words, it's his revelation that matters and we have to line up with it. And then we can worship him aright. Um, then that true worship takes us out of our futility. That's when we lift our eyes from our mud and back to the glory of God. And that's going to affect uh, our approach to sexual morality is going to approach, uh, affect our approach to everything because the glory of God shines brightly over everything. But if we can't recover that vision of the glory of God, then we're just in an endless culture war that is going to see us sinking further and further down if we bother with a culture war uh, until we are completely in- indistinguishable from the spirit of the age which surrounds us. And, uh, and I'm afraid... Um, much of what calls itself evangelical Christianity today is already there. Um, so we have to start over. <laughs> so that's a, a really good news. 
But the good news is that that God is sovereign and his word still is sure. And so we can start over. We know where to start. But it's important for the teachers of the church to recognize, to diagnose the issue and start from there. Sobering words, as you say, Tim, uh, but also uh, encouraging words. Uh, as you said, we can start over. We can be called back to God. We can be called back to his glory. We repent. We seek his face. We hear his word. And uh, that's getting really to the root of the cultural confusions and battles that we're fighting. And with without that, getting to the root, then we're, as you say, going to be we're going to be ignorant armies clashing by night, as Arnold put it. So again, the the book is uh, exchanging the glory. Uh, it's uh, the second volume of the Theopolis Explorations series. Uh, there's a lot more in the book than what we've discussed here, but uh, we hit some of the main basic themes and arguments of the book. And I I hope you'll pick it up and uh, I hope you'll share it. I think it's a, obviously addressing a very important cultural matter, but I think addressing it in a way that's uh, distinctively biblical. Uh, by focusing on the question of idolatry at, at the heart of our sexual confusions. So, Tim Gallant, thanks so much for joining us for this special edition of the Theopolis podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. appreciate it. Hey, folks, this is Brian Motes, content manager at Theopolis Institute. Thank you again for listening to this special edition of the Theopolis podcast. There are links in the show notes to all of Tim's books, as well as other ways that you can engage with our work at Theopolis. But for now, we hope that you were sharpened by this episode, and we look forward to being with you again in the next one. God bless.